Would you pray with me? Father God, we do just thank you for another day, another opportunity to come into this place and worship. Lord, as a family, um, united by your son Jesus. God, we just thank you for this church and Lord, your spirit being here with us. Lord, we invite you to just touch our hearts and our minds as we open your word. God, we're thankful for that and the way it speaks truth, life, hope, love in our lives. God, I just pray that uh, as Phil has prepared this message, that you'd speak through him, your word, and Lord, that uh, we would leave here uh, just encouraged, that we would be um, ready to make the changes we need to make, and God, just live for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Matt. First year Tina and I were married, we both stumbled headlong across some childhood regrets. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, wow, Phil's going to share some deeply personal things with us. We're going to get emotional insight into he and Tina. Not really. We're a, a lot more surface than that. But still, we stumbled across some deep childhood regrets. Let me start with Tina's regrets, because my story, I can tell it any way I want. So we'll start with Tina's. When we started dating, she had invited me to come down to her parents' house about 40 miles from where we were going to college. When we got there, her mom had set a table, amazing table, with a meal that I can still remember to this day. I'm not going to give you the full menu. I can just tell you that I can remember everything about that meal. And this thought went through my mind. Oh, wow. Tina's a keeper. If this is in her genes, whew, we had a pie when that was over like I, I hadn't tasted except for what my grandmother Burns, Helen Burns, had made for me. This was that good of a pie. This was a grandma type of pie. I thought, wow, I want to marry this lady because these types of pies will be in my life forever. After that, I'd shown up at the dorm where Tina was living on a Sunday evening just to spend some time with her. She walked out of her dorm room carrying a pie. Oh, man. This was good stuff. We put some ice cream across the top of it. I grabbed a fork and went to work on it, and I'm proud to say I did not surrender until the job was done. I'd, I finished off that pie, and I thought, wow, look at this. She can cook just like her mom. She can bake a pie just like her mom. Not too long after that, another month or so, another pie showed up on a Sunday night. It was just as good as the first pie. Then we got married. <laughs> I found out that though Tina had grown up in a, a house with a wonderful, wonderful cook, she had not spent much time in the kitchen with her mother. And I found that out through her confessing it to me. She said, I, I didn't spend a lot of time in there with her. I'm not a very good cook. I said, yeah, but what about those pies you baked for me? She said, my mom was there. We baked them together. And she just brought them back. And so I, I was deceived. I was hooked through deception. That's what this was, but it's all okay. So when we got married, she decided she was going to bake a pie for me, an apple pie with a crumbly top that we were going to put ice cream on. I actually took a picture of it. That's how special this was. Here's the picture. This was in 1989, the very first pie my wife baked for me. I'm in the living room shooting pictures of it. I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. Problem was, Tina still didn't really know how to bake the pie. So she spent most of that time with a phone in her ear talking to her mother. Now what do I do? Now what's next? So she's baking with one hand and she's talking with the other hand so that this pie would come about the way she wanted it to come about by the way it did. There have been many pies since, but there have also been many conversations with her mom since. And that first year that we were married, Tina would want to make this great meal for me to just be able to enjoy, but she would find herself time and time again saying, I don't know how to pull this off. So she'd pick up the phone. She'd call her mom. And her mom would talk her through it. 
Now, I'm proud to say after that first year, she is quite accomplished in the kitchen. <laughs> this is a testimony to that. <laughs> testimony to that. And she has passed those traits on to our daughter because Katie spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her mom because Tina said, I don't want Katie to be in that same situation, but I'll still be there to help. One of the things that Tina's mother did for her when we got married was give her a cookbook and a promise. You call me when you need me, and I'll help you with any of it. And she has. She has. And again, I've been blessed because of it. Now, here's, here's my childhood regret, this secret that I wish I had not stumbled across in that first year we were married. My father is one of those men that you can give a piece of sheet metal to, and he'll give you back a working car. That's all he needs. You just give him the sheet metal, and he'll build you a car out of it, everything that you need. He spent a lot of time out in the garage when I was growing up, keeping our vehicles running and working on some other things, some of them that were broken down. He just needed to get them running. He could do it. Still can. He can just make it work. Very mechanically minded, mechanically inclined. I didn't like spending that type of time out in the garage with him, so I missed out on a whole bunch of the skills that he could have passed on. And then we got married, and I found that we were on our own. We were not driving new vehicles, and there was certainly no warranty, and there was definitely no money. So when they broke down, it was my responsibility to fix them. My tool bag at the time consisted of a hammer, and I was very adept at it. So if it broke down, I figured just bang on it a little bit harder. It'll start running. Worked every once in a while, but more times than not, I found myself stymied. So you know what I did? I called my dad. I had a wrench in one hand and a phone in the other hand, and I was saying, Dad, you got to diagnose the problem and tell me how to fix it, and he did. A lot of times he was able to do that, and, and I was mechanicking via long distance. Then there were some times when he was unable to diagnose the problem, or I was certainly unable to fix it. I had to call somebody to help out. That meant that we would have to get a tow truck there to tow the vehicle into the mechanic. But again, let me remind you, we didn't have any money, so tow trucks were few and far between. I could, however, afford a tow rope, and we had two vehicles. Now, I'm going to just ask a question that has nothing to do whatsoever with what we're talking about today, but I'm curious. How many of you that are married have tested your marriage through the fires of towing vehicles together? That's where you're really going to find out how strong your love for one another is. You just go tow a vehicle together. If you have never done that, it doesn't have to break down. Just try it this afternoon. Hook on and just see what happens. I promise you, you are going to determine how strong your relationship is. So we, uh, we would hook on. I'd tow them to the shop, and the mechanic would fix them and, and all kinds of different things, and we'd get our vehicle back. Well, here's why I tell you that. Tina's mom, my dad, that mechanic, biblically would all be referred to the exact same way with a Greek word. Here's that word. They were parakletos. They were helpers that came alongside us when we needed them. They were there to guide. They were there to, to direct. They were there to fix. They were helpers, parakletos, that come alongside you. The Bible would promise every one of us a parakletos, a helper, that would come alongside us. His name, the Holy Spirit. Let me show him to you in the Bible. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 16, verse 7. This is where this term first appears in the Bible. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, now you could take that out. Some translations refer to him as the helper, the counselor, the helper, or in the Greek, the parakletos. 
Unless I go away, the paracletos will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's a promise from Jesus. When I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. Now here's why that was such a game-changing statement. Prior to that, for 33 years and predominantly for three years of his active ministry, Jesus had lived among mankind. What he was promising in the Paracletos was that he would no longer live among mankind, but he would live within mankind. He would come and dwell within us. The Holy Spirit will take up residence inside of those that give their life to Jesus Christ, that become believers. You receive a Paracletos, the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. That is a wonderful, wonderful promise. There are a number of faith systems, if you will, denominations maybe is a better term, churches, a great term, that don't spend nearly enough time talking about the Holy Spirit. The independent Christian church in all transparency happens to be one of those churches that doesn't spend nearly enough time talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm probably guilty as a preacher of not spending enough time talking about the Holy Spirit. And certainly I have assumed that a lot of people in the church understand more about the Spirit than they do or even than they should. Just because I grew up with the Spirit, have always understood the Holy Spirit, or at least have had a growing knowledge of the Holy Spirit, I haven't always taught Him the way I should. And our brotherhood of churches has been very guilty of that, not spending enough time dealing with the Holy Spirit, the paracletos that comes alongside us to help us and to become a part of our life. For the next few weeks, I want us to focus on this aspect of the Trinity, this person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. I hope you'll be here for us because the Spirit is really a game changer. The Holy Spirit truly is. And when you understand who He is, it makes everything different in your walk with the Lord. So for the next few weeks, this is where we're going to be. We're going to hang out in John chapter 15 and 16 a lot, but we're going to bounce to some other places in Scripture, and you'll see how that'll work this morning. Let's start with some of the negative assumptions that people have about the Spirit. We'll go to the 139th Psalm together. Turn there, would you, into the middle of your Bible, Psalm 139. Now, what you're going to see in this passage is both a positive and a negative interpretation. Psalm 139, verse 7. First, the negative. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, if you read that, let me say this right, the wrong way, you will see a negative connotation. Verse 8. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now take a look again at verse 7. The psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now let me talk just for a moment or two to those of you that know you are a Christian. You are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. This verse will make perfect sense to you. If you are not a Christian, it probably won't even resonate within you. You'll have no idea what the psalmist is talking about. But for those of you that are believers, that have the Holy Spirit living within you, it does make perfect sense. Where can I go to hide from your spirit? How do I get away from you? This is a rhetorical question. I'm not going to ask anybody to answer this, to raise your hand or anything else. I just want you to think about it. You ever found yourself in a situation where you have wanted to hide from the presence of God? 
Maybe you've wanted to go someplace where he could not see you. Maybe you wanted to go someplace where he could not hear you. Maybe you wanted to go someplace where you wouldn't have to hear him. And just for a few moments, you can live the way you wanted to live. There are a lot of people within modern Christianity that approach Psalm 139 verse 7 from that type of a negative approach. I just want to get away from the Spirit for a little while, but I can't. I can't pull that off because as the psalmist says, the Spirit is everywhere. We are hemmed in by the Spirit of God. Now that's the positive side of it. We are hemmed in by the very Spirit of God. Now that is so confusing to a number of people because the Holy Spirit's been given names like that, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. But what we really find out is that He is within us and around us and we are hemmed in by Him. Now the problem is, for some people, that leads us to what I would refer to as Jonah moments. The Spirit who has hemmed you in begins to speak to you and ask you to do some things that you think is beyond your scope of ability. There is no way I can pull this off. So you decide to follow verse 7 of the 139th Psalm. You get busy trying to escape the Spirit of God. You start running away from Him, just like Jonah did. Let me show you what that looks like. Go to the Old Testament book of Jonah with me. He has his own book, Jonah chapter 1. If you're in the book of Psalms, keep going to the right. Several books, you'll run into the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Psalm 139, verse 7. How do I get away? I don't want to do what you've asked me to do. How do I get away? For Jonah, that meant getting on a ship. For Jonah, that meant fleeing, running as far and as fast as he possibly could. It may very well have meant the same thing for you. You may have tried the exact same thing. So look at what happens. This is where God intervenes. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. God sent the storm. Now most of you, whether you grew up in Sunday school or not, are familiar with this story. You probably know that it got so bad after they'd thrown all the cargo off the ship that Jonah said, this is my fault. I am running from God. I am fleeing from His Spirit. Throw me overboard and the seas will calm down. So they did. They threw him into the ocean. And then look what happens, verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. That's a a Jonah moment coupled with a God moment. When the Lord intervenes, Jonah is running. He's trying to get away from the presence of God. And God has chased him like the hound of heaven. And now he's in the belly of a fish. Let me ask this question, not rhetorically. I want to just see how many of you know what this is like. How many of you have experienced Jonah moments where you have run from God and found yourself in the belly of a fish? metaphorically in the belly of a fish. This story is very literal. It happened just like the Bible records it. But metaphorically, we find ourselves in the belly of fish. Show of hands one more time. And the stink of fish is more than most of us can bear. We get covered by it and we find ourselves saying, Lord, why am I here? I don't want to be here. 
That's what happened to Jonah after three days. He said, okay, God, I surrender, and the fish puked him back out on the shore. Same thing's happened for a lot of us. You see, the Spirit will chase you because you are hemmed in by Him. The Spirit will chase you with inside those boundaries until He catches you and He will hold you there until you surrender. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. When the psalmist says, I can't get away from your Spirit, boy, he was right. Now, let's go to the positive side of that. He begins to talk about the fact that God is there no matter where we go, to the highest heights and the lowest lows. God is there. We are hemmed in by His Spirit. That is one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, to keep us hemmed in. And it's this beautiful thing that allows us to see God wherever He is at, and it allows us to experience God. He allows us to experience God when we need Him the most. And that leads us right into what I would refer to as John the Baptist moments. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11. New Testament now, the first book of the New Testament. John has been God's man literally from conception. From the moment he was in the womb all the way to his death, John was God's man. He had a unique job to announce the coming Messiah and to identify Jesus as that Messiah. That was John's job. He was very popular. People would come out into the desert to listen to him preach and teach. He was so popular. Rose in prominence under God's power, under the Spirit's power. People were flocking to hear him. And then he was arrested. And he was thrown into jail. And by all appearances, he would not leave that prison alive. He would lose his head because of a selfish, selfish woman. And he knew it. And in those moments... John needed something from God. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in the town of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Isn't that wonderful? Here's what's happening. John's in prison. He has spent his whole life proclaiming the coming Messiah, but now he's got some doubts that are hammering away at his soul, and he needs to make sure that his life was not spent in vain. He needs to make sure that the declarations that he had made with his mouth that came from his soul were not wrong. So he sends his disciples to Jesus just to make sure he was who he said he was. And Jesus says, you go back and tell him. You go back and set his mind at ease. You ever found yourself in the midst of some John moments? Wondering, doubting, questioning whether your beliefs were real? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have just needed encouragement from God and and nothing else was going to fill that hole? You needed something from God? Again, not a rhetorical question. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And God responds. And do you know how God responds? Through the parakletos, through the helper, through his spirit. That is one of the great gifts that God has given his children. The parakletos, the helper that will come alongside. And when you need him the most, he will be there. And you will receive what you need. Whether that is to be swallowed by a fish until the time that you surrender. Or whether that is to have your soul encouraged by the very presence of God. 
the Parakletos does that for us. That's the Holy Spirit. And it is a God-given gift. He is a God-given gift. Now, whether you find yourself in Jonah moments or John moments or all the moments in between or the moments on either side of those two individuals, I want you to understand who the Holy Spirit is. So let's just do a little bit of education. We'll set the table so that you can really eat the finer parts of this meal. You have to dig into Scripture to figure out a few things about the Spirit if you are really going to be able to trust Him. Let's start with this. Again, there's a lot of confusion because of His name, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. We never did anybody any favors by referring to the Spirit of God as a ghost. It made the Spirit very mysterious, very hard to grasp. Again, not a rhetorical question. How many of you grew up hearing the Spirit referred to as the Holy Ghost and you never could figure Him out? Well, that's why we gave him a name that was impossible to figure out. He is a he. Catch that. He is not a ghost. He is not an it. He is not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a he. Now, this is why I wanted you to have a Bible with you so you could see this for yourself. We're going back to the Gospel of John. Chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, the parakletos whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. Now listen, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit is a he. Catch that. It's important. He is a he. And he has a mind. Romans chapter 8. Turn over with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 27. Paul writes, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. He has a mind. And his mind searches the mind of God. His mind searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. That's part of the relationship. When the Holy Spirit lives within you, you can gain understanding of the deep things of God because of the mind of the Spirit. Without that, they will remain elusive to you. A number of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You spent years outside of Christ. Maybe you would pick up a Bible or you would listen to Christians speak and you were totally confused by what you heard, be it from the Bible or from their mouths. It just made no sense. But then when you became a Christian, it all started to clear up for you because of the Spirit. His mind was connected to yours, and you had access to the deep things of God. The Spirit is not only a he with a mind, but he also has a will. We're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 11. All these are the work of one in the same Spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. That's the will of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever found yourself wondering why some people seem to have blessings that you don't have? that ever happened in your life? Happens in mine. Why do these people get blessed where I don't get blessed? That's because of the will of the Spirit. Because God chose to do that and His Spirit brought it about. You ever wondered why some people have to struggle in ways that you have never struggled? That's because of the will of the Spirit. The Spirit knows you. He knows exactly what you need and He applies His will to help you. Remember, He's the parakletos. So whether He's blessing or stretching... He's doing that because of his will and his relationship with you. Well, we find out that he also has emotions. He, follow that, he has a mind and a will and emotions. This is Galatians 
chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those are the emotions of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And they become a part of your life because of your relationship with the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. His emotions begin to carry over to you. That's how it works. That's the relationship. When the Spirit is living inside of you, He brings all those things with Him. He brings His mind and His will and his emotions, that you might have a greater understanding of your relationship with Christ. He is the parakletos that helps you understand God. And he comes alongside us. That's amazing. Now here's where this really gets deep. Let's get out of the shallow end of the pool and we'll take a plunge into the deep end of the pool. Not only is he a he with a mind and a will and emotions, but he is also part of the Trinity. He is part of the Trinity. And we're going to go back to John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Now this is Jesus talking about God the Father and God the Spirit. So you have God the Son talking about God the Father and God the Spirit. All three are different entities represented in the same being. They are three separate beings in one. That's the Trinity. See why we're in the deep end of the pool now? This isn't just easy stuff to understand. If we were to separate them out and understand God the Father and understand God the Son and understand God the Spirit one-on-one, that's very easy to do. But when we wrap them together in biblical teaching, we find out that they are all the same person. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a part of the Trinity. We're going to talk more about that next week, but let me go ahead and share with you what deep theologians have said about the Trinity. This is good stuff. These guys know what they're talking about. If you try to explain the Trinity, they say, you may well lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you will lose your soul. And that's good teaching. So next week, we're going to talk more about how the Trinity works, and we'll break it down just a little bit so that you can see the role of the Holy Spirit within that. But I want you to hold on to this. This is so important that if you try to deny it or you try to explain it away, you could actually lose your soul. So we have God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Three different entities in one. That's the triune Godhead. Hard for people to understand, but once you do, you begin to see all of the interconnectivity of it and what the Spirit is trying to accomplish in your life. He's trying to accomplish good things. He really is. Some of those are simple for us to understand just by looking at the Bible. The things that the Spirit is bringing about begins with a simple thing called life. We live as Christians by the Spirit. Go with me again to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now here's what Paul's teaching. We live by the Spirit unto righteousness. So here's how that works. 
You become a Christian, and all of a sudden, some things that you have always participated in your life and never gave a second thought to, you now understand as sin. They go against the will and the nature and the word of God. They're sin. So you deal with those things in your life. And then you continue on down the path of life and more sin gets revealed to you. And you deal with that sin. And you travel on down the path of life and more sin gets revealed to you. And you deal with that sin. And you travel on down the path of life. See how this works? The Spirit is teaching you how to live according to the Word of God, the will of God, the nature of God, that you might live under righteousness. And He does that by convicting us of sin. Again, not a rhetorical question. I'm just asking you to, to be transparent here. How many of you have had sin revealed in your life even after you became a Christian that you never saw a sin, but then instantly a light went off and you said, I got to deal with that? You see, that's life by the Spirit. The Spirit is whittling away things within you that do not please God, and He's doing it through convicting you. But he also does it by stretching you into those deep things of God that you might really understand who he is. He brings real life, life unto righteousness for us. Part of the process of that is by stretching us into worship. And the Bible teaches that we worship by the Spirit. That's really hard for some people to understand. You come to church because of the Holy Spirit. You worship God in all kinds of different ways because of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Now let me illustrate this a couple different ways. A lot of people, if we were to just take a poll, would say that they come to church because their parents told them they needed to go to church. There are other people that would say they go to church because they feel guilty when they don't. There are other people that would say they go to church just because they've always gone to church and that's what they're supposed to do. But the truth of it from the Bible is this. If you are a child of God, you come to church to be in the presence of God, surrounded by His people, that you might participate in worship. And all of that is brought about by the Spirit living within you. Now remember, that Spirit has a will and a mind, and He knows you as an individual. And so some people come to worship just for the fellowship, just to be surrounded by God's people that becomes worship in and of its own. Other people come for the music because they're unique. They're different. They come for the music. Other people, because they're godly and spiritual and they love the Lord, come for the preaching. A little bit of a joke. Other people come to take the Lord's Supper. Other people come to give. Other people come for the invitation time. Other people come to be pushed into positions of risk. And all of that is part of worship. And the Holy Spirit knows what you need, so He stirs your heart to be in His presence. Now that's Sunday morning type of worship. There's everyday worship that the parakletos is involved in in your life. I was driving down the hall road yesterday. The colors were stunning, just stunning. The river was beautiful, and I found myself thinking, if I wasn't a Christian, all I would think to myself is, this is really pretty. But because I'm a Christian, I find myself saying, wow, God, look at what you did. That comes from the Spirit. That is Spirit-led worship in the everyday moments of life that the Spirit leads you into. You see how that works? We worship by the Spirit. and We also witness by the Spirit. Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, the Paracletos, comes on you, 
And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those of you that have had the wonderful privilege of sharing your faith with other people know how this works. Again, not a rhetorical question. How many of you have had somebody ask you about your relationship with Christ, put you on the spot, and when the conversation was over, you looked back upon it and realized that you said things that you have no idea where those came from? Maybe you quoted some scripture that if you were asked to do it again, you could never pull it off. A lot of you know what I'm talking about. You witness by the Spirit. When you are placed in that situation to share your faith with somebody else, the Spirit is there. This is a promise of God. The Holy Spirit is there to help you, that you will be able to say what needs to be said in those moments. A lot of times, people will bring somebody into my office and say, hey, I want you to meet so-and-so. They have some questions about the things of God, and I can't answer those questions. Could you? And one of the things that goes through my mind first is, thank you for this opportunity. I love nothing more than to be able to talk about Jesus Christ and the things of the Lord, and that's a cool part about my job. But then my second thought is, the Holy Spirit paired you up with that person. You trust the parakletos to give you the words that they need. He didn't say, let's pair them up with Phil. He said, let's pair them up with you so that you can be the one to do this. And that is a promise of the parakletos, a parakletos promise that you will witness by the power of the Spirit, not by your own power. So don't be scared of it. You just be faithful with it. God is there. If you've never experienced that, pray for the opportunity to share your faith and then hang on to the saddle horn because you are in for quite a ride. You really are. And you will get to see what the Spirit does. It's always remarkable. So we live by the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit. We witness by the Spirit. All of that happens because the Holy Spirit lives within us. There is still wonderful biblical teaching about who the Spirit is that you need to see. Let's go back to John chapter 16 real quick. I want to pick up in verse 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet not one of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Now that's great teaching about the Spirit. We'll be picking that apart in the coming weeks and looking at it. You can see what Jesus already said. The Spirit comes to judge the world. He's going to judge non-believers according to sin. He's going to judge believers according to righteousness. He's going to stretch believers in their walk with Christ. All that's going to happen. And he's going to be the helper, the parakletos. He's going to come alongside you. As we wrap this message up, I want to be honest with you and tell you that this is not how I intended to finish it. I changed things on Friday night. I still wasn't finished with the message. I would take care of that Saturday morning, but... I had a direction for the end that I wanted to chase. And then Friday evening, I had my eyes open to something a couple days after it happened that changed the whole direction 
of the message. Those events took place in the state of Oregon at a community college there. A lot of you are fully aware of what took place. A gunman went into the school and he attacked Christians. I want to read for you what I read Friday night. Now, I'd been off the internet, really just kind of busy doing some other things, so I didn't see this when it first happened. I was a couple days behind it. This is what I read. This is from the New York Post. A gunman singled out Christians, telling them that they would see God in one second during a rampage at an Oregon college Thursday that left at least nine innocent people dead and several more wounded, survivors and authorities said. He started asking people one by one what their religion was. Are you a Christian, he would ask them. And if you're a Christian, stand up. And they would stand up. And he said, good, because you're a Christian, you're going to see God in just about one second. And then he shot and killed them. Stacy Boylan, whose daughter was wounded at Umpqua Community College in Roseburg, Oregon, told all those events to CNN. A Twitter user who said her grandmother was at the scene of the carnage tweeted that if victims said they were Christian, then they were shot in the head. If they said no or didn't answer, they were shot in the legs. The gunman, his name's printed here, but I'm not going to read it for you because I don't want to give him any more credence than we have to. The gunman's disdain for religion was evident in an online profile in which he became a member of a doesn't-like organized religion group on an internet dating site. Courtney Moore, age 18, said that she saw the teacher of her writing class get shot in the head at the college's Snyder Hall before the gunman started asking people to state their religion and opening fire, the city's news review newspaper reported. The gunman, age 26, was killed in a shootout with police outside of the classrooms, said Douglas County Sheriff John Hanlon. There was an exchange of gunfire, he said, and the shooter threat was neutralized. Yesterday, they declared that the gunman took his own life, great act of cowardice. After all this was done, he walked in and started shooting and then didn't finish what he started with the authorities. He took his own life. I also learned this morning, I didn't know this, wasn't aware of it, that he was also Muslim. He identified it with the Muslim religion, and they uncovered that, and some news sources reported it last night. He walked in specifically to target Christians, children of God. There is absolutely nothing surprising about that if you have read John chapter 15. Let's pick up in verse 18 together. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would be, not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, Paracletos, whom I will send to you from the father... The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. 
They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Seven times in that passage, Jesus uses the term hate. And he uses it directed towards us so that we would understand that if we are children of God, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we'll be hated. This past week, that was demonstrated in an amazing way. The fulfillment of that passage was right in front of us. Even down the line to when you discover that this man was a Muslim, he would believe that his act was a great service to God. Did you hear what Jesus said? I don't even know God. And they think this was a great service. These seven people, seven to nine that were Christian, were confronted with their faith and, and asked if they believed. And they had a choice to either admit it, knowing what would happen, or to deny it. And can you imagine what the ramifications of that might be? So they said, yes, I'm a Christian. They stood up right where they were at. One of the men that was shot was an American soldier. He had fought in Iraq. Chris Mintz is his name. He took seven shots as he distracted the gunman that other people might live and drew fire on himself seven times before he went down. He's still alive today, but he was shot seven times. No one is ever going to tell me that the American soldier is only a hero when they are deployed overseas. An American soldier is a hero no matter what battlefield they are on. But along with Chris Mintz, nine other people lost their lives. They were Christians. They stood up and boldly declared their faith. How powerful is that? Here's what shocked me. Friday night and Saturday morning, I was reading on Facebook. Friends of mine on Facebook, strong Christian friends, one of them, even a professor at a Bible college in our Brotherhood of Churches, said they don't know what they would have done. They don't know what they would have done. This professor said that he's not sure he would have declared that he was a Christian because he would have been thinking of his wife and children and the fact that they would be left. So he's not sure what he would have said. Other people just said, I I don't know that I could be that strong. My answer is this. None of us do until we are faced with that. But we have this beautiful gift of the parakletos that helps us make the declaration that we need to. The Holy Spirit helps in those moments. And I am absolutely convinced that those people that stood up from their desk did so with the parakletos right beside them. The Holy Spirit empowering the decisions that they had to make and the choices that they had to make. What they may not realize and what I know the gunman did not realize is that every one of them that made that declaration would later hear Jesus say, in fact, instantly after their death would hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. You know why? Because Jesus says this in the the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. That, my friends, is biblical truth that sometimes requires the strength of the parakletos to bring about. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, we see this in the 23rd chapter of Luke, would make this statement. We talked about it just a few weeks ago. He would say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the Bible says he breathed his last. 
So he made that declaration, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he breathed his last. People that are living by the Spirit understand what that means. People that are being led by the Spirit understand what that means. That my commitment is strong enough to commit everything that I have, including my life, to Christ. And if I must breathe my last right after that, I will breathe my last. And that's what they did. And it happened through the power of the parakletos, through the Holy Spirit. You may wonder to yourself, faced with the same situation, what would I do? Well, my prayer for you would be that you would trust the Spirit because the Spirit would lead you to stand. The Spirit would bring you to your feet when questioned the same way. I would not be a good pastor, I'm absolutely convinced of that, if I didn't ask you this same question. If faced with that situation, how many of you would stand? Why don't you stand? If you don't know if you could pull that off, then you trust the Spirit, the Parakletos. He will come alongside and help you when you need it the most. But you reaffirm over and over and over again in your faith, in your soul, in your mind, that you will confess Jesus before men, that he might confess you before his Father, because the other side of that is nothing you want to mess with. So you reaffirm it over and over and over again by learning how to pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit and I will breathe my last doing it. I want us to pray together. Worship team's going to come and we're just going to pray together. Father in heaven seems like kind of an abrupt end to this message. It needs to be. There was an abruptness that happened just not far from us this past week. But we saw your spirit at work. And I am grateful for that. The Bible would teach that those people that stood, that lost their lives standing for you or around your throne today, dressed in white, singing holy, holy, holy. Lord, they are martyred saints. I'm grateful for their strength. I am grateful for the testimony that went out in all the newspapers of what they did. Father, as we learned in Sunday school, that things that were intended for evil, you use for good. And I'm grateful for this message. No matter how much anyone might choose to hate us, Lord, your love overshadows that. So thank you for it. Pray now for those that maybe need their faith strengthened here. Lord, would you do that for them? In Jesus' name, amen.